Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Last episode, we talked about how GitHub got a lot of updates, particularly being able to parse Elixir code and add code navigation. And this was all thanks to TreeSitter support. There's another language that we care about that just got TreeSitter support, and that's Gleam. So we'll have a link to the parser, but I'm really happy to see that Gleam now has TreeSitter support. So maybe that means that, I don't know, maybe Gleam can get some code navigation love in GitHub world. But if nonetheless, it's it's going to be a really good parser for syntax engines and code navigation and stuff like that. So happy to see that. Thanks for the contributors for writing one up. And next up, Erlang OTP 25 had a new release candidate. So this is 25.0. RC1. This one includes a number of features and benefits. The big headline feature is that it gets JIT support, which is the just-in-time compilation to the machine language for ARM64, which in this case, it's specifically talking about the Apple M1 chips that everyone has been kind of waiting for to see when is this going to land? When is this going to get the ARM support? I saw a tweet. I'm not even going to try to say his name because I'll, I'll certainly butcher it, but we'll leave a, a link in the show notes where he said he he tried out the new release candidate on his M1 and he's seeing 20% faster improvements just from upgrading OTP versions from 103 seconds to compile down to 78 seconds to compile. So that's pretty cool. Exciting to see these, this progress being made. Yeah. Another feature that I thought was really interesting is an upgrade to the way ETS tables work. It, they get a new option which is a write concurrency auto flag that you can declare when you're setting up a new ETS table. And so I was reading about this to see, kind of understand what's what's the benefit, where does this help? And it was just pointing out that you can create an ETS table with this write concurrency auto, and it will depend on the runtime environment where the ETS table is being referenced. And it says, wow, there's a lot of concurrency happening here in communicating with this table. I'm going to change the way the locks work at runtime. So I haven't thought through to say when that would be an ideal situation, but I haven't seen that kind of before and sounded really interesting. And I'm sure there's some reasons and rationale behind that. Maybe that's a a new default for folks who accidentally needed to read concurrency and then it just changes for you at at runtime. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, here, you, you probably should have set this option. We'll go ahead and do it for you. You needed this other option. Also in the uh, RC1 is, uh, or OTP25, is a new option for float to binary. I think we touched on this in a previous episode a, a while back ago, but this is a result from vendoring in the work of Ryu. Ryu was a PhD thesis, I believe, representing numbers and floats as strings and how to do that quickly. OTP24 got some work of Ryu already, and so OTP25 is going to be using a little bit more of Ryu. And as far as I can tell, maybe I'm misunderstanding here, but this looks to be leveraging Ryu when converting floats now. There's a new option to leverage Ryu, and that's the short option. So you, so you specify float to binary, put in the float, and then you specify the, the short option. And I like this option because, well, it's just going to always give you the shortest representation of it. So like 7.14 will render as 7.14. It's, it makes sense. There's not a bunch of like trailing zeros after that. If you recall, floats are a little funny when you do some math. <laughs> and so another example of this is if you do like 0.1 plus 0.2, you hit that magical 0.3 float number that gets all wonky. If you add the short option here, it'll render as, wait for it, 3.0000000000000 all the way. I'm not going to count how many, but eventually you get to four. And that's the shortest representation of a float that I can render without you know, immediately going to that scientific notation. Uh, that, that part has always bugged me. I don't know how to read scientific notation so quickly. So the short option looks like it's actually going to be <laughs> helpful for readability of these, of these floats. And quicker, much quicker it looks like for, for those big, big floats anyway. Glad to see that land and also happy to see that it keeps accuracy. That, that's pretty cool too. Also new in OCB25 is the improved JIT support for debugging tools called Perf and GDB. When we interviewed the Erlang team about this, those were two big improvements of the JIT, right? The JIT is this just-in-time compilation. And so you want to be able to debug easier, and it was harder to do that before this. So adding better support for Perf and GDB will be really helpful for debugging the internals of, uh, of Erlang. 
One of the new features coming out in this release candidate is the maybe dot 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 end syntax construct. We've heard about this before. It's inspired by Elixir's with macro. Maybe I can't say that it's inspired, but it's you can think of it like that, that it's it's related to that. One of the things I loved learning when we talked with Jose Valim about the with statement is how it was an implementation of a functional monad and like a specific implementation of a monad is the maybe monad. I love the with statement and what it lets me do and how it lets my Elixir code be more expressive. I think it's awesome that we're seeing that same style of code be now possible in Erlang itself. Yeah, just to note, though, that 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 doesn't come out um, by default. I think you have to add a flag to implement it. So they're still testing with it. And in case you don't you don't catch what that really means, the with statement, you know, helps me put the the happy path on top and the and the unhappy path on the bottom. And in Erlang, you'd have to do a, a, a huge nested, you know, case statement all the way down and keep on indenting and stuff. Now Erlang gets the benefit of it. So it's that's pretty cool. You get the happy path on top, unhappy path on bottom now. Hey, you guys want to hear a crazy thing? I was reading some open docs and they actually put the unhappy path inside the with block. And it blew my mind. <laughs> what? More details on that next time on unwarranted unhelpful tips. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a fan favorite. Okay, still talking about OCP25. We got a, a new function called crypto under the crypto module hash equals, which is just a constant time comparison of hash values. That's pretty cool. Love the constant time. That means you don't have to worry about performance too much. And the last thing I saw that stood out in the OTP25 release candidate was that Dialyzer gets a little bit smarter. And it now may generate some new warnings for situations that it can detect. So one of the things to be aware of with Dialyzer is it really only complains when it's sure that something is wrong. So if it can't be sure, like I can't guarantee that this is wrong, then it silently doesn't complain about a possible problem. It doesn't warn us about those. So I think it's just really neat when it's able to be tuned in a little bit more and say, hey, there's a couple more places where I can spot some issues. Nice to see the dialyzer continues to get advancements. Moving on from the awesomeness of OTP, there's a new feature added to XDoc. It looks sounds like the work was funded by the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. The changes is what they're calling admonition blocks. And we'll have a link in the in the show notes. It looks like it's just an easy way to have a special call out or a quote display in your docs. It's, it's going to be a great feature for libraries. It looks like it's just using some markdown and some special tags that are interpreted. And then you can style your quote block as an error or just as something that gets extra attention. It's a nice little style addition. Yeah, we've got a link to where you can see that in the X docs where they talk about admission blocks and they also show in the docs examples of it. So you can get a better idea of how that works. And next up, Brooklyn Myers is working on making Livebook a better experience for creating and delivering courses, as that's part of what he's working on. He's been playing with adding a feature of like slides or a carousel feature to a Livebook. So there's nothing to release yet. He said he, he is going to release this when he gets it done. But what I just thought was interesting is when he was explaining how this works, he says, you can create custom widgets with kino.js.live and kino.js and that he's making the carousel public so we, people can see how this works. But it made me think, if you're using Livebook as an internal tool on your team, maybe to help troubleshoot things on a production system or to get business intelligence, then there might be situations where you want to create some custom widgets that are more specific to your use case. And just knowing that, hey, I can create custom widgets using these Kino features, that's pretty cool. All right, last up, in episode 85, we talked to Coco about his work with Elixir in computer vision. It was eVision, I believe. He's created a new interesting project. It's still early, but we wanted to put it on your radar. It's called Otter. It's described as letting you call C functions in a shared library without writing a NIF. So if you want to leverage like some C functions directly, but you didn't really want to dive into like, creating a NIF and all that, this might be pretty helpful. We've got some links to, that helps describe it, and I'm not a C programmer, so I'm probably going to get some of this wrong, but the underlying library itself is a NIF library, but the things built on top of it can be written in pure Elixir. Imagine this is helpful when you need to interface with existing C libraries, probably like computer vision stuff, like where Coco is in focus, but it's an interesting approach and curious to see where it goes. Uh, we'll also have a link to uh, our episode with Coco because uh, he's deep in this, so I'd love to see where this goes. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. 
Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Michael Crum. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, Michael, this is going to be cool because you've been working on some interesting stuff. And a lot of it really is kind of behind the scenes things that may not get a lot of attention. It's like, wow, okay, so you've been involved with the Phoenix dashboard and you're working on something now around this Phoenix debug toolbar and like, I got to learn what that's all about. And you're also very involved with LiveView and what's going on there. So I'm excited to do all of that. But before we jump in and go all crazy on LiveView and, and the cool stuff you're doing, maybe you can tell us a little about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? I am in Sacramento, California. I've been here about 10 years now. I work for a company called CargoSense. We do logistics intelligence or like IoT logistics. I do a lot of front end work. I'm the principal, a principal engineer at CargoSense where we primarily work on tracking shipments, but it's a little, that, that sounds kind of generic and boring. And I guess to some extent it is a little, it is a little generic and boring, but it's a very large industry and we, we move a lot of goods. So to spend most of my time focused on UI UX, you know, primarily in live view for a front end application with a GraphQL backend. And so do a lot of user interaction in that way. So how did you end up coming to Elixir then? Funnily enough, I was working for a company shortly after I moved to Sacramento. I was working for a company that did artist services and stuff, a lot of stuff for the music industry. So blogs, forums, merchandising kind of stuff. And the CTO at the company at the time, he was a big Ruby fan and he had come across Elixir and had kind of just shared it as sort of a, hey, look at this, you know, something interesting, something new. And this was probably, it's probably 2015, I think. I was fascinated. I picked up a copy of the Little Elixir and OTP guidebook. And so that was sort of my first kind of, you know, foray into what Elixir development was. And I was immediately lost. I had spent spent most of my time, you know, working in PHP. And so functional paradigms were completely sort of new to me. And, and a lot of the things were very different than, than a lot of the work I had done prior to that point. You know, but but it was it was just immediately fascinating. The very first example in the book, like the hello world for for Elixir in the guidebook was pattern matching an ID three tag out of an MP3 file. And it was just like so like you get binary binary pattern matching right off the bat. And I was like, what is what is the sorcery? <laughs> so immediately just, just dove in and, and started, you know, trying to learn everything I could and read up as much as I could and found a job. So shortly after I left that company, I went and did the startup thing, did a couple of different places and Ended up working for a company that is since defunct, but was doing a lot of work in video instant replays and such. And they were actually working, funnily enough, they were look, working at Elixir. And I had been doing, I had been working for a company doing, you know, a lot of PHP development still, a lot of web-based, you know, event search kind of stuff is what we had been doing. And I was learning about Elixir at the time. And I told myself, I was like, I really want to find an Elixir job. And I figured at the time this was probably... I assumed it was impossible. Like I was just figured it was, we were so new. It was, it was something so you know, just kind of out there that I was like, the idea that I could go get a job doing this seems like that's not a thing. And weirdly enough, the company that was right across the hallway in the little incubator that we were working at here in, in Sacramento was also writing code in Elixir. So as our startup at the time, we ran out of funding, you know, had to find a new position and was like within two weeks had an Elixir job. And so I was fortunate to be able to actually sort of cut my teeth and, and learn, you know, the language on the job, like for, for money. So that was a, that was a huge leg up for me in terms of like really getting comfortable with the language and starting to learn things and, and, you know, making my way around the, around the community. Well, Michael, you've done a lot of work on the Phoenix dashboard. And I also understand that you have been working on something new and I would love for you to tell us about it, but maybe you can first just kind of share a little bit about your involvement with the Phoenix dashboard. Like, how did you get started with that? And, and what is your role? I am the original author of a Phoenix Live dashboard that started as kind of a side project. It was before I had joined the Phoenix core team. So I'm also a member of the Phoenix core team for those that aren't aware and you certainly don't need to be. I was looking for just a way to dive in. And I remember it was probably right after Elixir Conf 2019, I think, which was in Colorado, the famous power outage conference. <laughs> So after that conference, Chris McCord was on a podcast and he was discussing the idea of a dashboard for Phoenix. And I had been doing a lot of work in Broadway. I, I wrote the Broadway Cloud PubSub package. So the, the Google Cloud, Cloud PubSub adapter for Broadway. 
which I effectively just cargo culted from the SQS package that, that Wojtek Mock wrote. I've, I've had a lot of success uh, copying code that Wojtek wrote and turning it into something else. So that's worked out pretty well for me so far. <laughs> and so I've been doing quite a bit of work in, in Broadway and, you know, playing around with, with PubSub. And so, you know, through that had, had run into, you know, just the idea of collecting metrics and some of those other kinds of things. And so all, all the talk that was happening, you know, was really fascinated by all the work in telemetry that was happening as well. And so, I heard Chris give this podcast and so I, or, you know, this, this interview where he was talking about the idea of building a dashboard. So I, I reached out to him privately and I said, Hey, if there's, if there's any room to help, like I would, I would just love to, to get involved. And he was like, yeah, we're going to have a call about it here in about a, a week or, you know, a couple of weeks or whatever. And, you know, you should join us. I said, great. And so I jumped on the call and, and, uh, he was out sick that day. <laughs> so, so I ended up on a phone call with Jose Valim and the rest of the, the Phoenix core team. And we started talking about, you know, the ideas for the dashboard. And as we were sort of fleshing out like what, what we wanted it to be or, or, you know, where, where we wanted the concept to go, you know, I thought it all sounded really great. And so then as we we're kind of wrapping up the call, Jose says, so do you want to write it? Asking you? Yeah. <laughs> I said, um, sure. <laughs> that was how that started. That's the secret to open source development. You invite someone to your meeting and then you're basically selling them on the idea of doing some large chunk of work for you. That is absolutely the secret to uh, Phoenix open source <laughs> development. Anyway, that is fi find someone who is willing to contribute the feature and see if they, you know, and then sort of shepherd them through the process, which I'll be honest, is a really great way to get people involved in, in the language, you know, and I think there's been some criticism at different times about, you know, well, you see the same people doing the same work all the time. I would say it's more of a function of that those people got involved and that they, you know, tried to like really dive in and do stuff. And yes, some of us are maybe we try to be overachievers and we do too many things, but Truly, that's, that's all it takes, though, to get involved is like, if you if you want to get involved, get involved. And like it said a lot, I think folks, sometimes maybe there's a little hesitance to, you know, to, to open an issue or to create a PR or to reach out and say, hey, I, you know, I would love to see this this edition or I saw this this thing that I think maybe is a problem. Maybe it's not, you know, what can what can I do or how can we kind of see this through? And, and honestly, a lot of it, just it's just a matter of asking, because if you ask the question, you're going to get either. A, no, we don't really want to go that direction. Or yeah, that sounds great. Do you want to submit a PR? So know that if you come, if you come with an idea, generally speaking, you're going to get asked to, to contribute that, that feature. So, so live dashboard has been pretty great for looking at, you know, the status of my current system, but I know that there's a lot of other ways that like you can try to debug something that's going on. And the way that I typically do it is <laughs> low, low, low effort, maybe IO inspecting everywhere. But that has gotten me so far to where I, I am just uncomfortable doing that. But also, I, I sometimes I don't put it in the right places and yeah, I, I just get it wrong and, and, until I get it right. It's a time suck. And there's, there's certain things that I don't know to debug for, like performance issues, too. You know, I'm just looking for like a, a very specific thing that is not rendering the way I, I thought. So I'd, I just, I inspect some things out, which in other languages, this would be puts debugging, right? So this is the same thing here, really. How do you debug with, with Phoenix? And may, maybe this would be a good way to tell us about what you're working on. I'm a huge fan of IO inspect myself. You know, it is, it's quick, it's dirty, it gets the job done. And most of the time, like that's, that's kind of all you need. Even to the extent that like, I know that there are better things. Like, you know, we, we have like IEX.pry and, and some of those kind of features. And I'll be honest, having not come from a Ruby background, that sometimes those things can be very unintuitive to me because like it's just not anything that I would have previously reached for. I've done the IEX pry and but but as soon as I realized that I can't like continue the execution <laughs> path, like I can't go to the next step, I was like, oh, this is worthless to me. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> the benefit is sort of minimal, right? Like it's good, you know, to to an extent or to, or to a point, and then yeah, you're kind of you're kind of left with what you're left with, you know. And I've heard it said even just recently that you know the idea that like if you're writing a IO inspect or whatever, you should probably be writing a test. And like while I agree with that. Two, to some extent, sometimes I just need to know what's in the struct, right? Like it's just, there's something it's in the assigns. I don't know, you know, if I'm, if I'm working in live view or, or even in a, you know, just a Phoenix view, but I just, I just kind of want to know like what data do I have available to me right now? Right. That's not really test stuff. That's more, you know, in the middle of your day, like exploratory. Yeah, totally. That's a great way to put it. And at that point, I mean, yeah, I own spec 100%, but if I'm in a live view and I, I own spec. And if you work on a project that's at all real time or, you know, just data intensive, your logs might be, you know, because the IO specs comes out the, 
comes out the console, right? So I'm, I'm in my browser and then I'm over here in the console and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. But if you, if you have a data intensive application, that log might be fairly noisy, right? And it can be hard to find things. And I know for me, that was, was certainly the inspiration for starting to find, or part of the inspiration for trying to find a better way, another tool, something else to make it easier to, when I need to debug something or I need to get some information, just quick and dirty, if you will, like get some information out of, out of the page or out of the assigns in LiveView, how, how can I find that information easily without having to, to trudge through, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of lines of GraphQL responses, right? Trying to know what's going on in my logs. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it led to, you know, in, in other frameworks specifically, I, like I said, I, my background was primarily in PHP. So I spent a lot of time working in the Symphony framework, Zend framework prior to that, if, you know, for, for the olds out there. One of the things that was really great about the Symphony framework was the inclusion of the profiler and debug toolbar, which is super handy tool for being able to just kind of get, you know, metadata or, or to collect information about all of the requests that are passing through your web application. What is this profiler doing? Is this, uh, I, I'm imagining something like, uh, oh gosh, since we're talking about old stuff, is this like a SHTML thing where it would kind of shim in this extra HTML thing in a development environment and then put out, you know, or render some lists of, of I don't know, variables that, that it needed to render the page or where you're at or the, or the template that was rendered? What, what, what is on this thing? Yeah, a bit, a bit like that in the sense that, so not to talk too much about Symphony because it's completely irrelevant to the, you know, to, I would say probably the, the let's say 100% of the listeners of this podcast, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Symphony framework though is primarily based on the event dispatcher pattern. So it fo follows Java Spring primarily as the framework sort of that it, that it models. So it's all event dispatch based, which makes it actually, it's a little bit easier to implement some of what they've done than what I've attempted to do with, uh, so to quit burying the lead, I'm working on a Phoenix profiler and web debug toolbar for, for the Phoenix framework. And it is heavily inspired by Symphony package of a very similar name. What the profiler does, so whether that we're talking the Symphony one, or we can start talking about the Phoenix one, it, it's primarily just gathers up a lot of information about what happened during the course of a request. So, you know, it injects some, some tooling into the request early on to pick up the changes, but again, primarily just attaching or, you know, injecting itself into the event dispatch, you know, workflow, but to, to gather up information that is then displayed via a, a toolbar that is injected into the page, you know, in, in the dev environment so that you can, you know, get some, some quick feedback on things that are happening on the page, or for the most part, everywhere else in the world that we talk about this, we're talking about stateless HTTP, right? Like we're all the time we're talking about stateless HTTP. We have this wonderful new paradigm to discuss about how we do live debugging or like live profiling, which is, I'll tell you, a, a fantastically more difficult problem than I realized when I started working on this. <laughs> they're all stateless HTTP. So they're, it's about gathering up what happened during the request. And then when the request is over, displaying that information back to you and saying, here's, here's what happened. Here's how long it took to render the view. Here's how long it took to, you know, do the whatever pre plug pipeline steps. Here's what it, you know, here's how long it took to, to, you know, determine the route, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a lot of that. And then there's, there's memory profiling. And then I think most interestingly is the, the ability for additional tools to plug into that system, right? So whether it's your, your DB layer or your mail system or, you know, cache, what have you, I'll probably need to write a GraphQL one for work. You can get more feedback on, on the different types of things that are occurring on the page, you know, even within these additional tooling, like plugins and things that you might add. So you talked about the Symphony one and how there's like this event dispatching system where it would hook in and that's how it would collect the data and then render it. For your Phoenix one, the most analogous thing that, that I can compare that to is, is telemetry. Yes, sir. Is that? Oh, I got it right. Oh, I, I, I'm going to get it. Oh, nice. Okay, I should go on a game show. Feeling lucky today. So, so you're hooking into telemetry. You're attaching event handlers uh, to start listening for these things, and that's what you're able to render. That sounds pretty good. Is it? Is it interactive? Is there stuff that you can do with this, or is it just printing out information? So, at the moment, it is. It is not interactive. Though, as I was sort of researching, even just to chat with y'all today, it did make me realize that. So in that same vein of the, you know, the idea of, of the sort of the IO puts debugging versus, you know, pry or, or that kind of thing, you know, the more I got to thinking about, it, I mean, there may, there may be value in, in looking at like, is there virtue in adding a REPL to the toolbar? I don't know. Maybe. 
I hadn't really thought about it, but it, it certainly is not outside the realm of possibility. I mean, given the the state of the the ecosystem right now, I mean, we get with Livebook and everything else. Like, I don't see any reason why we we couldn't do that. <laughs> Could you just have this uh, a Livebook uh, toolbar here that interacts with my live environment? <laughs> you know, I think that might. I, I don't know. I didn't explore it, but I, it's probably. I, I can't imagine it's that far outside the realm of possibility. You know, it's, it's actually a really curious idea and I should probably play around with that some more. I have to be honest. It's it's really funny if I'm going to let, let me admit to some things that are terrible, but so other folks in the, they're not terrible, but so that other folks in the, in the community maybe don't feel quite so bad. I have not written anything in live book because, you know, I just haven't had the time and we are still running live view 016 for our, you know, our flagship live view application at, at work. So, you know, Upgrades are hard. No live book and and old live view. Shame, sir. <laughs> I know it's madness. But the truth is, you know, for anybody else that's out there, the the zero sixteen to zero seventeen upgrade is is it's work. It takes some time to do. And if you have written a lot of live view, like you're going to spend some time working on yep. yeah. doing that whole thing. And it seems like from the docs, and I mean, you know, it's not a lot. Like the, the amount of the amount of things that are backwards incompatible is small, but you've probably written a lot of them, right? Because it's every state, it's every stateful live view. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a lot, like every, every form, every form that's in a modal in our application, which is basically every form needs to be updated in at least some way, right? To support heeks. And it's, if you followed all the rules all the time, you might be okay. If you've made bad decisions in your view templates, you're going to have a bad time. And, you know, <laughs> we've all made bad decisions in our view templates. So it's just, you know, it's just one of those things. Like it happens and I think it just sets to remember that, yeah, sometimes those things take longer than you want them to. And I, for me, it's a good reminder of like, let's not do silly things in the views. Like let's make a, let's make a better choice at the beginning so that we don't have to go through this heart, this heartache every time. So, so going back to the Phoenix debug toolbar that you're working on. So, so some ways that I have debugged stuff is by firing up Observer and then rendering my live view page, for example, watching the memory spike, the IO spike, whatever, and then and then making decisions from there. But I've got this this other window open, and you have to have had a Erlang compiled with uh, WX widgets, and sometimes that's an issue for some folks, and uh, you, maybe you can't open that. So then you use live dashboard anyway. So you've got these kind of like two different ways of like profiling something. You've got the observer if you have it available. What what is Phoenix Debug Toolbar going to do for for me? What what information does it show me at the moment? And this is still a little bit a little bit in flux. So we're still kind of early on the development. What is coming out of the toolbar at the moment is some basic metrics related to the individual request that you know that that just fired. So let's say you're working in you know, your, your Phoenix app and you're wanting to, you know, whatever, just your standard development for, for the day. And so you fire up the app and you go to a page. And if you have the debug toolbar running, or if you've, you've installed the profiler into your app in, in the dev environment, it's not meant for running in production, but it's safe to install in a way that you can, you know, it just, you don't enable it in the production environment and it won't run in production and there should be no overhead, no, no additional overhead for having it there. It, it doesn't compile itself out, but it, it, you know, and it, and it does, unfortunately, this may be changeable, but at the moment, like you have to install it. it. It's not like ES build where you can just install it in dev, right? Like you have, you, you have to install it in all of your environments, but you don't have to enable it. And therefore it won't like the, the plug is a no op, right? When you, when you put it in your, in your endpoint. Yeah. No ops. Right. What, what you get is you get a, the, when the request fires, we, we do all the things that happen. And then right before the request in the same way that the live reload tool works within Phoenix, which is that it injects an iframe into your page, like at the very bottom of the page, right before the response is sent to the browser, the debug toolbar does the same thing. It injects itself into the page, but it rather than injecting an iframe that's going to make a socket call and, you know, wait and watch for changes, it injects a live view. So we do a, we do a live render into the page and that renders the toolbar. So it, it takes the information that's been gathered by the, the profiler process that's running in the background. And it displays that into the toolbar. And then if you have configured live view within your application, debug toolbar live view works just as any other live view would work. So when the socket connection occurs, it will also be connected. And it, you know, is a, we're then able to start introspecting the live process that's, that's running or, you know, or any of any of the live view processes that are running and start gathering information from them to, to display as well. So you'd mentioned this idea that dealing with a stateful connection is a lot more complicated than you had anticipated when you first took on this task. Normally, like I've, I've seen those types of debug toolbars before, and honestly, I'd forgotten about them because I've been in Elixir space and just, they aren't around, so I just hadn't thought about them. So when you're talking about like this 
WebSocket, persistent connection, and there's messages going back up and forth. Like I've used the dev Chrome tools to see what's going on in my WebSocket connections when I'm messages are being sent or something like that. So what is this going to be able to do or not do around stateful connections like that? The nice thing about what we've been able to do, and by sort of backing this off of, of live view, it's made the setup process significantly easier than, than what I've seen in a, lot of other, in a lot of other cases. Just to use the Symphony toolbar as another example, the operating sort of flow for that is to, it gathers up the information, it injects some minimal JavaScript and HTML into the page, and then it makes an Ajax, and that JavaScript then makes an Ajax request to actually pull the toolbar down and display it on your page. So that kind of happens, you know, out of band. There's a lot of other introspection that's needed to like look at things like API requests and stuff like that. From our end, the the nice thing is that sort of the the stateful needs kind of fall out of the just the the live view paradigm already. So you kind of like a lot of the setup is is actually quite simple. The difficulty comes in, you know, anything that's difficult about concurrent development. So case in point, what you run into is that when we make the request, right? So you have the stateless request goes to the server. We do whatever we do. We render the, the response. It gets sent back to the browser. But the browser is then being asked to request several resources again from the server, right? It's going to make a socket request. And then there are a number of things that are are trying to talk over that over that socket connection. You've got your live views on the page, and then you have the toolbar that's there as well. So the the actual programming model for the toolbar is it's a race. Like there is a natural race condition that is built into the way that it works because you have both live views trying to connect and say, I'm, you know, I'm trying to do things and the toolbar almost never gets there first. <laughs> it may be provable that it will never get there first because if it, it's last on the page, it may be last to, to, re re to respond. I'm not hundred percent sure, but it does look that way uh, in, the, in the way that I was running things. So, so the toolbar kind of has to wait, which does create this weird something that I want to work on in later versions, but there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem right at the beginning. So there are certain events, you know, it can be hard to catch. You may not get every single event on the page, but once the toolbar has connected and it's there listening, it will get any subsequent request or event that occurs, you know, that, that it's, it has been configured to listen to so, so that that information comes through. But it, it has caused a couple of little weird bits and pieces. I added the ability to be able to like enable and disable the the profiling kind of on the fly. And if you do that in your mount, like it doesn't get picked up because the toolbar is not there to listen to it yet. And so, you know, a little couple of little weird idiosyncrasies like that. When you're on the client side, it gives us the ability to introspect from the server side is effectively what it like what it comes down to without the need for like really heavy, like tracing kinds of tools. So that that was sort of my goal was if, if it's from the perspective of like, if you think about it from the perspective of the like the three pillars of observability, right? And the idea of, of like logging metrics and tracing. This is sort of tracing. It's not all the way there, but in the sense of, I think what we've tried to do with some of the dashboard tools and some of that other stuff, which is to give developers, you know, helpful tools that they can use right out of the box, but that, that aren't necessarily, it's not the end all be all of everything, right? Like the dashboard was never meant to replace Prometheus or Grafana. It was it wasn't meant to replace, you know, your need for like an APM, like AppSignal or New Relic, right? It, but it's there to be out of the box, you know, metrics, logs, and and now hopefully some, you know, with with the profiler, which won't be built in, but you know, with that addition, if you add it, sort of the, the tracing bit too, to be able to get more observability for your application, you know, kind of just built in for you. But you likely, if you're in a professional environment or a, a, a large production application, you know, you're probably not running the toolbar as your only observability or the, the, the dashboard rather is your only observability tool, right? You likely need more than, than what it was ever meant to provide, right? It's, it's sort of just a jumping off point, if that makes sense. So I guess one question I had is when you set out to do this, obviously there was some inspiration that you took from the Symphony version. But what was the goal that you're saying, this is what I'm trying to solve? Like, if I can give insight into this thing, this will be helpful. What was that? Primarily, it came down to, to use a very general term, the idea of developer experience, right? I wanted to, I wanted to see if we could improve. And truly, this was the goal of, of Life Dashboard as well. It was like, let's see if we can improve the developer experience when, when working in, in a Phoenix application. What I have found working on larger apps and the last you know few projects that I've worked on have been you know fairly large Phoenix applications. It can be difficult sometimes to know where you are at, at any given point in time. You know, I'm on a I'm on a page and I see the path in the toolbar, you know, but if I'm or, you know in the in the address bar of my browser, 
But if I'm looking in the code, I'm likely not going to run into that. I'm not going to find that path if I go looking for to try and determine how did I get here? What rendered this page? You know, how, like, what, what is, what is the flow? I'm going to see a lot of references to like helper, you know, router helper functions or, or, or things like that. So then I, so I see the path that got me, you know, maybe I clicked the link to get here. So I go and look at what, what rendered that link. And I see that it references a path. So then I go to the router and I look to see if I can figure out that path, but maybe it's not immediately named that it's actually an as kind of on the end of the router. So now I'm, you know, trying to figure out what, where in the world am I, right? Uh, just so that I can kind of find my way around the system, understand how it works or, or how it's been configured. One of the things that I really liked about working in, in a Symfony application when, you know, with working with a toolbar that, that kind of gives you some of this information is that it's right there in front of your face. So one of the things that I wanted to do uh, was to add, you know, I want to be able to show the, the path helper on the toolbar for whatever page you're on. So you can see, you know, if it's called, you know, if you would render the path through page path or page URL, right, it will show in the toolbar, it will say page. So that, you know, which is not quite as handy as like, I think we could get, that could be even a little bit better because page isn't immediately intuitive since you're going to run into primarily page path. But the idea is to be able to, I want to see the helper name. I want to know what it is because that's going to be something that is more readily available in the code, something I can go find, you know, or, or find reference to, to understand sort of where I'm at to help my, help me find my way around. And then the other one, the the bigger one, I think for for me was again came down to pr primarily like debug ergonomics, if you'll allow me to use a silly phrase, but the ability to to understand what happened when something went wrong. So, like I said before, we we have a we have a large live application at CargoSense. We have a lot of you know complex forms and 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 other interactions that we're doing. And one thing that we run into a lot with with a live application is, I mean, where, where we have embraced the let it crash philosophy in certain cases it can be very hard to know what went wrong i mean because yeah we let it crash but maybe we want to handle that error or maybe we want to deal with something and when i'm on a page that needed you know it made let's say a dozen graphql requests at the top of the page to you know or at the, the top of the request to to kick everything off and then i click a button and it crashes it then makes all those requests again and then i have to kind of scroll through my log to try and find what in the world happened where did it go wrong this and that and the other thing so one of the other things that we added to the dashboard or to the toolbar rather was it catches exceptions. So fortunately, the, you know, the exceptions come out the other end of the, of the telemetry events as well. So we're able to introspect those and then show you the exception and its stack trace and what have you right there in the toolbar. So no longer do I have to go dig through my console to understand what just went wrong. I've got the stack trace right there. It's in the browser. I can see it and it persists through the crash. So like the, the toolbar doesn't get re-rendered. So you, you know, the live view behind behind the toolbar crashes. We see the error. We can then go, you know, dig dig deep and, and see what we need to do to correct it. So I love the idea of what you said about helping you figure out where you are. Cause I've I've experienced that even on just my own app, right? Where I should know everything about which route I'm on. And but uh, over time you kind of lose the connection, you know, like when looking at my routes file to which live view or controller is handling this. So I can really see that being helpful, especially when you talk about onboarding someone new to a team coming into a large existing project and you're asking them to work on a feature on this page and like, ah, where is this? You know, how do I get here? You know, rather than having to ask a lot of questions, which, you know, they need to do if they're stuck, but maybe it helps people get unstuck faster. That's just really valuable for that aspect alone. And then you mentioned this idea of it persisting through crashes. So it retains that state and can show you what happened. That is also very helpful. I imagine there was some clever engineering to make that work. You know, funnily enough, again, it's just one of those one of those things that sort of falls out of the of the live view paradigm. You know, when you're rendering multiple live views on a single page, they are isolated processes. So the nice thing about that is, is that the the live view itself crashes, but the one that we injected into the page doesn't. I mean, unless you know. The toolbar has a bug, right? But in terms of what, you know, its ability to introspect what's happening in behind the scenes, it's not impacted by the crashes, you know, in, in that live view process. So they're just another, you know, another advantage of the, the actor workflow, just, just the whole ecosystem. I know that you, you know, you, you've mentioned that you, you're the primary author of live dashboard. You're working on this Phoenix debug toolbar. Now you're an active contributor to many things, Phoenix. I heard that you're working on improvements to live view forms. And this is something that I've I've had a lot of struggles with myself. So I'm really curious, what are you trying to improve with Live View Forms? Because I imagine most apps out there have a form of some sort. So this is this could potentially be, you know, an, an impacting kind of thing. Can you share with me what you're working on? 
Absolutely. So it's still, I'll start by saying it's still very, very, very early. So I don't have a lot other than just to say that like we, this is an area that has been, it comes up all the time. It comes up on the forums. It comes up in Slack on IRC, you know, questions about, I'm trying to do something complicated with forms, or I want a input component to do something specific within my form, or I have nested associations and I want to be able to add and remove them without uh, it being painful, you know, all of these kinds of things that come up and it's something that is something that I, I, I'm very interested in trying to improve because really, I mean, I've been doing web development for like 20 years now and it's always been, it's always been like this, but I think we can do better, right? We can, we can have better tools. We can have something that is more pleasurable to, to work with. And I will say like coming from other frameworks and other applications or whatever, when I found Elixir and specifically Phoenix and started working with building applications in that way. I, you know, again, it was just delightful right from the, right from the jump. And a lot of that had to do with the tooling around change sets and forms. And, you know, I had spent a lot of time prior to that in the whole, you know, active record versus data mapper argument of who likes what and what is better. And again, not coming from rails, I didn't do a lot of active records. So the other like data mapper and all that kind of stuff makes a little bit more sense to me. It felt a little more, you know, proper, if you will, whatever. Ecto and Ecto chain sets definitely fell into that category for me. And I was like, no, this is the way this is, this is how you do it. And then the integration with live view forms and the idea of the form data protocol, even though most of people, most folks don't interact with this directly, right? You, you interact with it all the time when you're building a form forms are great. That, that paradigm is awesome for stateless HTTP. It works great. It's fantastic. You send the request to the server and it does all the things it needs to do and it validates it for the database and it comes and if it's wrong and it's bad, then you re-render the form that one time in the response and you show the errors and then you never do it again, right? Because it's stateless HTTP and we threw it all away. That doesn't work in live view. But with stateful, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my argument is basically that the, the form data protocol or the implementation of the form data protocol for Ecto change set is great for stateless HTTP, but it is fundamentally broken in several ways for, for live view if you're trying to do anything complicated. So then you have to sort of do a lot of the work manually that, that otherwise you wouldn't have to do. Short version, I think we can bring some of the paradigms that made building forms and, and that interaction for stateless HTTP that made it so great. I think we can bring that to live view and bring back some of the joyfulness of working with those things as opposed to it being like tedious and difficult and less necessary. The goal is not to completely rewrite the, you know, the way forms work. I mean, my desire would be that it's something that we can sort of wrap the current implementation and, and you go about your day and things work well, but it remains to be seen. What's, what's the tease? What, what is something that might be different for handling stateful forms? Chris would really like to see the diff size reduced, right? We'd like to be able to not have to send the whole form with, with every update. I've been less focused on that part and more focused on just making the things that we're sort of used to work. I would love it if append and prepend in the way that, you know, you're sort of used to working for like with input. If you've ever worked with nested chain sets and you do like an inputs for where you want to iterate or, or, you know, write a comprehension about those, those sub forms, I'd like that to work. I think that would be good. So that's sort of my my starting place is like, let's let's make some of the tooling work or if it doesn't work or if it's not going to work, let's build something that will. So you're saying this is not like a whole reimagining. You're, you're not necessarily saying we're going to not use change sets as the way we're interacting with them. Is, is that right? Correct. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any desire to completely reimagine how all that stuff works, especially at the data layer. I mean, change sets, Change sets are a fantastic tool for what they do. The implementation that allows them to work as the data source for forms is good. Like I, I think it's a it's a good model and it, and it works really well. But what we yeah, but what we run into is more with the form control than it is with the the form data specifically. So I don't know at this time and moment. I'm not sure if that ends up being if it's another protocol, if it's a you know a, a reimagining of the form controls that can still use you know the underlying Ecto change set so that it, it works in a similar way. But I think we're going to work on what we can do on the live view side to improve, improve the DX there. And then if, if those changes apply in any way to, you know, the, the stateless side of the world, then we can sort of backfill in that direction as well. Well, I certainly look forward to seeing and hearing about your progress as things go forward. And maybe we'll have you come back on when there's something, when it's ready to be released and ready to be shared, we, so we can have a deeper dive and understand all the work you put into it. One other question it sounds like a lot of the work that you're doing, is any of that being supported by CargoSense? Are they letting you work and spend some of your 
your work time on these things? CargoSense has been really great about being able to, you know, find time to to work on some open source and be able to, to contribute back to to the Phoenix application. When I started at CargoSense, you know, I had a conversation with with Ben Wilson, who's the CTO. Uh, several folks will know is a, uh, one of the authors of the the Absence Framework, uh, and Rich Kilmer, who's the CEO of of CargoSense, and, and some folks who came from the Ruby Ruby community may know. Rich has been around for a long time, worked on Ruby Gems and, and several other things. So. And he claims that he's the one who first mentioned Erlang to, to the Ruby community. So I don't know if that's true or not, but he says it fairly, fairly often. So he'll be happy I mentioned that. <laughs> the conversation that I had with Rich was that effectively, because I was looking, I was looking for, you know, some amount of like sponsorship in the position, and he was like, "I'm not going to pay you to work on Live View, but the whole app is Live View, and we probably, you know, it, it probably will need some support." I can't remember exactly how he said it now, but. Effectively, yeah. So they were really great. And in my position, I'm not paid to contribute to LiveView, but because the app is almost exclusively LiveView, there's a lot of room for, you know, for when we run into bugs or if we run into, you know, potential for features and things like that, that I am able to take some time and sort of either contribute those back or, or get more, you know, in depth on what the problem is and be able to, you know, to, to share that with the, with the Phoenix core team and stuff. So, so it's a good, it's a good balance, I think, in terms of the, the relationship and it, a lot of that has led to i mean one thing that is is definitely true about the cargo sense platform is that we have really complex forms and so there's a lot of work and less less on the profiler side but much more on the on the form side of the world there's a lot of i think we have a lot of good examples of complicated ways forms get handled so that we can you know hopefully use that knowledge to contribute back to a better implementation on on some of these form tools that's cool you got some real world situations that you're trying to solve and improve for your team. 100%. Very nice. Before I forget, I would just in terms of, of support, I did want to mention that uh, another person who's been helping me out with the toolbar project is another developer named Leandro Pereira. And he's been been super great. He helped me out with a, another project a little ways back where I tried to set up like the ability to take screenshots in live view tests. And it's still out there, but no one should ever use it. It's horrible. You have to run like a whole Chrome <laughs> driver in the background and it's, there's no reason for it. But Leandro's been super awesome and, and helped out a ton with with getting the stuff off the off the ground. And he's he's running the toolbar in production on his app already. So I've uh, been getting a lot of great feedback from that too. Yeah, so I guess that leads me to this last question, which is how ready is the debug toolbar? Can people start using it right now? Or what's your timeline for uh, a public Say, like saying it's ready. Yeah, totally. So it's it's on GitHub. It's on my GitHub, the repo's called Phoenix underscore profiler. It is in a usable state. I've been in the middle of this refactor, so I haven't actually installed it into our, our Cargo Sense app yet, but that's my next next step actually after our launch later this week. That'll be two companies I know of running it in production. It is stable for what it is. There are not a lot of features at the moment. It's been a lot of, I put the thing together as a result of my ElixirConf talk from in the fall. I was working on a talk about the live view life cycle. And I think I said this during the talk too, but more born out of procrastination than anything else. Like I worked on the toolbar instead of writing my talk. <laughs> it worked out pretty well. And, you know, as I started working on it and realizing it, some of it came out of the, the, you know, the, once we added hooks to live view, sort of one of those things where I don't do a lot of meta programming. So when we added hooks, then suddenly it was like, oh, I can do programmatic things in other people's live views. And I'm sure that the other folks on the team were just like, yeah, we could, we could always do that. What are you talking about? But I don't work like that. <laughs> so this was a way that we could could start to, once I realized it, it was like, oh, we can inject code into other people's live views, like at runtime, not at compile time. And I was like, this is great. And so I started, you know, started working on what what would become the, the basis of the toolbar. It's taken me a little longer to launch it than I had wanted to, only because when you build things that way, I don't know if everybody's this way, but for me, I went and like just, you know, rocked it out, right? And then went back and went, this is all horrible. I don't know what any of it does. It doesn't have any tests behind it. Can't possibly release this to the community, right? So I've been working a lot on trying to, you know, clean it up, make sure everything is solid because, you know, it just, if you're going to put it into your app, I want to make sure it's not going to cause you any, any issues. And even without, even with just the soft launch, because I've said almost nothing about it, we've got several people have started using it and trying it out and uh, gotten some good feedback from that already. So, so I would say it's, I mean, it's very much alpha software, right? But if you want to run it and get some, see if it brings some benefit to your, to your, to your dev experience, please do, please try it out, submit bug reports. If something isn't working the way you expect it to submit a pull request, if you have thoughts on, on improvements and stuff. Yeah. I would love to see if it helps folks out. You've mentioned this a couple of times, but I want to make sure it's clear that this is a developer time 
tool it should never be exposed in production right yeah yeah absolutely i and i even put a, a message to that effect in the in the readme which i hesitated about because there there is a possibility so this is to share one last story with you and i know we're, we're running long here but when we started working on live dashboard i fully assumed we were building a development tool when i set out to do it and i started all the choices that i had made early on were, were came from a place of like we're building a dev tool and then one day talking to Jose and Chris and he's like, no, we're going to put it in production. And I said, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> he said, no, it's a, yeah, it's a, it, you can run it in production. And I, I was like, okay, well, we have to, we have to make at least a few different design choices. So that led to, we pulled out chart.js as the charting library and replaced it with microplot because we knew chart.js wasn't going to hold up. And that was proven the very first time I tried to run a load test. We, you know, a, a few other things that were done to, to make sure that it was stable and capable of, and, and secure and safe to run in production. So when I started building the toolbar, I was like, can it be production? And I don't know. The toolbar, no, unless you have a way to like conditionally render it when you know it's a dev, right? So whether that's a session variable or something that gets set somewhere. I mean, there may be things, but as it stands, no, it's, it's a dev tool. Run it in development. There may be room for doing some profiling stuff in, in production, but it's certainly one of those things where if we ever get to that place or if, if someone wants to take it to that place, we're going to need a lot of additional configuration around, you know, do this for some tiny percentage of requests in production or do this only, you know, in, in this case, or here's an MFA that says when to do it, right? Like this run this function and then true or false decides whether we profile this request or not. So a lot of those kind of things that I just haven't taken the time to really like dive into yet. So yeah, 100%. And thank you for calling that out. 100%. It is a development tool, run it in development. The only other thing we didn't mention is there is a nice little dashboard integration too, which is sort of nice. So it's not just for HTML debugging. Like you can debug your your Phoenix API if if that's something that you want to do. You can get the profile information out of the dashboard for API requests, which is pretty handy. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So that is definitely something worth checking out, especially like I've mentioned before, I think there's a lot of value in having that as a tool that's in the project, especially when you're bringing on more new people to the project, giving them some of that insight as to what's going on, because they're not familiar with where things are, or all the queries and things that are happening behind the scenes. And so great, great ability to give insight. If people want to get in touch with you, maybe follow you online, or check out and follow up with any of this, where should they go to do that? Sure. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at mcrum, though I try and stay off of there because it's bad for your health. <laughs> I'm also on GitHub, also mcrum. I'm on the Elixir Slack at, at Crumb. So yeah, feel free to reach out uh, any of those places. I set up my GitHub sponsorship. So if you're a company using these tools and would like to you know, help out and stuff, hit up my GitHub sponsors page. If you're an individual, don't feel any requirement to do that whatsoever. Primarily Slack is probably, if you're looking for me for Elixir things, Elixir Slack is probably the easiest place to find me. And we'll have links to that in the show notes. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.